Okay, I'm going to get started now. So, uh, first I'm going to pray just because I'm really nervous. Um, so, Lord, I ask that you would give me peace to deliver this message that your wisdom and truth is made known and that it's not just Keenan's ideas, but that it's your ideas. Um, and I ask that whatever I say, that it would be said um, to bring glory to you. And I ask that we would learn something from this idea today. In your name, amen. Um, so I'm going to be talking a lot specifically about a word in the Old Testament. Um, the word is Timshil. Um, and I will kind of give you the reason for why I'm going to talk about it or how that came to be. So Liz Jorgensen, for the last couple years, has been recommending a book to me. And um, if you haven't heard me speak before, uh, I'll clue you in. I usually reference literature a lot when I speak because I, I, I find a lot of my belief system through literature. Um, and the book that I just finished a week ago uh, is the one that Liz recommended. It's called East of Eden. It's by John Steinbeck, and it was written in the 50s. Um, but the, the story moved me pretty deeply, um, and I'm kind of going to share like what, what that word means in that story, what it means in the Bible, and kind of how it affects our life. Um, East of Eden is a retelling of the Cain and Abel story. So I put for the reading today to be like the first 16 verses of the fourth chapter of Genesis, which is telling the Cain and Abel story. Um, so I'm going to be reading from that, and I'm also going to be talking about the story of the East of Eden. Not to be mean, but I'm going to give spoilers, so I'm going to literally ruin the whole story. So if you don't, don't hate me for it, but I think that most of you most likely may not read it, but I figure either way, you need to hear the idea behind the story. So sorry if I ruin it for you. It's still a good read, but I'm probably going to ruin it for you. Um, but I'm going to start by reading the first uh, 16 verses in the fourth chapter of Genesis. And I had to use this as my place marker, so if the first like couple minutes of this message, you can't hear anything, it's because the recorder's in the Bible, so. <laughs> okay, so starting in chapter four, it says, and I'm reading from uh, the message, uh, sorry, the voice translation. Um, it says, now Adam and Eve discovered the pleasures of lovemaking, and soon Eve conceived and gave birth to a son whom they named Cain. And Eve said, look, I have created a new human, a male child, with the help of the eternal. Eve went on to give birth to Cain's brother, Abel. Abel grew up to become a shepherd, and Cain grew up to become a farmer. After he had learned how to produce the food from the fields, Cain gave the Eternal One an offering, some of the crops he had grown from the ground. For his part of the offering, Abel gave God some tender lamb meat, the choicest cuts from the firstborn of his flock. The Eternal One accepted Abel and his gift of lamb, while he had no regard for Cain and what he presented. Because of this, Cain became extremely angry, and his face fell. The Eternal One said to him, Why are you angry, and why do you look so despondent? Don't you know that as long as you do what is right, then I accept you? But if you do not do what is right, watch out, because sin is crouching at the door. 
ready to pounce on you. You must master it before it masters you. Cain spoke to his brother Abel when they were in the field. Cain's envy of his brother got the better of him, and he attacked and killed Abel. The Eternal One said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain responded, I have no idea. How am I supposed to be responsible for where he goes and what he does? Really chill. Um, I think God says, to, God says to Cain, what have you done? Listen, can you hear the voice of your brother's blood crying out to me from the ground? And now you are cursed, cut off from the ground, the ground that opened up and received your, blood, your brother's innocent blood, spilled by your own murderous hand. From now on, when you till the ground, it will no longer yield for you its strength and nourishment. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you have banned me from the soil and hidden me from your presence. I will be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth, and anyone who meets me will want to kill me. The Eternal One said, this is not the case. Whoever kills you will suffer my vengeance and pay the penalty seven times. Then God put a special mark on Cain so that no one who came in contact with him would try to kill him. Then Cain went away from the Eternal's presence and settled in the land of Nod, a place for wanderers to the east of Eden. See the title correlation there? Um, I want to take a minute and actually dive into kind of the emotional weight of the story because I've heard, I don't know, I've heard this story a billion times and never really gave it too much thought, but it's actually really sad and pretty messed up. So Adam and Eve in the previous passage had just been banished from the Garden of Eden. Um, and the reason that they were banished is because they wanted to be just like God. And, the, and I say that because if you read the passage, it talks about God says, there's only one tree in this garden that I don't want you to eat from, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent convinces them, no, you know, you're going to be fine. You're not going to die if you eat this fruit. It's fine for you to know good and evil just the same as God does. He just doesn't want you to be the same. And they eat it. And then they become aware of what is right and wrong. They become, it's kind of the narrative of how we decided that we need to be the judge of what is right and wrong and kind of instead of relying on God to tell us what is right and wrong we said no I want to be knowledgeable of what is right and wrong and that's where Adam and Eve were that's where they leave off and we get into the story of Cain and Abel so that's where they come from they come from they come from parents who decided we need to know for ourselves what is right and wrong um and it's really sad because they, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, but were not intended to be God, not intended to make that decision. Um, so Adam and Eve were forced to flee communion with God, and immediately after that, they take part in creation for the first time by having a child, and the very first human that is made by two people and not from the dust is a murderer. So the very first like human being that came from two human beings is only known because he's a murderer. It wasn't Abel first, it was Cain first. And I was like, that's, that's really deep and really intense. I mean, like, the, yeah, I mean, the, 
I never really thought about the fact that the firstborn, like, real human child is a murderer. Is like, that's the, that's what we know of him. Um, so, Earth's firstborn son is a murderer. Um, the firstborn under sin it becomes the first one to enact it, and that's his history. Before Cain, there was no there was no death. Death had not occurred yet. So can you imagine, like, you are the first two people on earth. You were in communion with God, and that was part of your daily life. You experienced being with God. You had no idea what death is, and you take part in creation for the first time, and the child that you bear kills his brother, and you don't even know what kills is yet. Like, you don't even know what murder is yet. They, don't, they have not experienced death at this point. So, like, the discovery of Abel's body, like, what would have even gone through their mind? Like, this is just the shell of what was... Like, I can't even imagine how devastating that story is. And, like, it's been recreated in paintings and things like that, but I guess I never really thought about how, like, just intense of a story that is. Um, I'm going to be going back and forth between this story and the story that's in East of Eden. So now I'm going to talk about what occurs in East of Eden. The story of East of Eden is primarily about the lives of two different families. Um, it follows the Trasks and the Hamiltons. Um, the first half of the novel really tells the story of how Adam Trask's sons are born. Um, Adam Trask falls in love with a woman who shows up on his doorstep who's injured. And he doesn't know that she's actually um, a prostitute who has been basically beat up by her pimp. Um, and she is basically, throughout the whole novel, portrayed as a sociopath. She's got no affection for another human being. Uh, but he falls in love with her, and she basically plays him, and he marries her and moves her to California. And she's pregnant, and we don't actually even know if it's by him or not, but she bears twins and shoots him because she doesn't want the kids, she doesn't want to be with him, so she shoots him to get out of the picture. And Adam obviously falls into a deep depression because his wife, that he, in his mind, is perfect, she tried to murder him and runs away and abandons him and their children. Well, his friend, Samuel Hamilton, he comes into the picture and tries to pull Adam out of his depression. And this is like the middle part of the book. So like I said, if you want to read it, it's really long, but I'm just summarizing it for you. So he tries to pull him out of the depression, and he's like, you have these two boys, and you, don't, you haven't even named them yet. Like, it's been, and in the novel, you're not, it's not quite clear, but it's probably been a couple of years. Like, these kids are, like, old enough to talk, and they don't even have names yet because you are so ashamed of everything that happened. So... <clears throat> His friend, they, they sit up all night and are reading the Bible trying to pick good hero names for the children. And what they start talking about is the Cain and Abel story. And specifically, Sam Hamilton starts talking about the word Tishmil. Um, the word Tishmil is in that first part of the verse that I put up. So it's in... Uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, it's the part where it says, sin crouches at the door, 
and it says, and you must master it? Well, the word timshil uh, can be translated a couple different ways. So how it's most often tr translated is, thou must conquer sin. But it can also be translated in other ways. The other two ways that it could be translated is, thou will conquer sin. So meaning like, there is, it's, a, it's assured, it's predestined, it's what will be. And the last, least common way that it's translated is, thou mayest conquer sin. Um, and one of the characters goes on to say this about, about the word timshil. He says, but the Hebrew word, the word timshil, thou mayest, that gives a choice. It might be the most important word in the world. That says the way is open. That throws it right back on man. For if thou mayest, it is also true that thou mayest not. And after I read about that, I was like, well, that's really interesting. And I started researching, like, what, like, did John Steinbeck just make this up? Like, what's, like, what, how much, like, truth is there to this word Tim Shell? So I started researching it, and if you type it into Google, like, that's the first thing that pops up every time is this novel East of Eden, because it features pretty prominently in the story. Um, but there... Like, it's pretty much true that it can fall into one of those three categories. And everyone kind of debates on, like, which way is, like, the correct way to translate it. Um, I think, personally, I think there is hopefulness in all three of them. Uh, I think the first one, the first translation, the um, thou must conquer sin, that one is probably the least hopeful to me, um, just because it is... Um, it's like an expectation, if that makes sense. It's directive, it's very like, you, you have no choice, you have to conquer it, there's not really any, I will help you, any, like, no, there's nothing to that. Whereas the next one is, thou will conquer sin, and that one's really helpful to me because it's saying, no matter what, like, you will conquer it, like, it will be assured that you will conquer it. And then the last one is super interesting because it puts the emphasis on us, like, we have been given the choice to either conquer it or not conquer it, but it's on our heads. Like, it's our, we have been given that position to say, I will either conquer the sin or I will not conquer the sin. Um, so I did more research on Cain and Abel, um, just trying to find out kind of how that story has played in history. I tried to do, uh, when I was in college, we did, it's called Exegesis. It's where you read commentaries and try to figure out like the story behind the story a little bit. Um, I tried to do that, but I did not go to a library. I tried to do it online, and I don't recommend studying that way because it's really confusing and it doesn't really make sense. And everyone says something different, so it's really hard to kind of know. Um, but there were some weird tidbits that I picked up on just how history has portrayed Cain. Um, for a long time, like in medieval times, there was a big debate about who Cain's parents were, which is really weird because, like it says in the Bible, it's Adam and Eve are his parents. Well, they're like, in medieval times, they thought, well, how could Adam and Eve, the first, like, pure humans, make, like, such a horrible child? And so then for a long time, people believed that Cain was actually the product of the serpent impregnating Eve. And so that Cain was actually a product of the devil, and that's why it brought... And it, so, like, there's just... It takes away the human side of it. It makes it into a... It takes away the human face of evil, if that makes sense. Like, it kind of makes it, like, a weird... Like, only the devil would make this kind of wickedness possible. Um, and not a 
statement of the fact that we are all capable of doing horrible things and we're all capable of doing wonderful things. Um, I also believe a lot of weird things like when he was sent away that he became the man in the moon. Like that was, for a long time people like saw the face of the moon and they're like, that's Cain, he's been sent away. Weird, so next time you look at the man in the moon, think of that. Um, but as I was studying the story of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, there's a lot of correlation between Abel and Jesus. Um, both are shepherds, both are murdered innocents. Um, and in Hebrews 12, 24, uh, Hebrews was written to the Jews, um, probably most likely by Paul. That's who it was attributed to, but it could have been. Some people think it was a woman. So they could be a lot of different, a lot of different people who wrote the book of Hebrews. But it's essentially them saying, Hebrews is the book of us trying to convert Judaism to Christianity, the transition of here's this way of thinking to this way of thinking. And there's a couple of verses in Hebrews that talk about comparing Abel and Jesus. Um, because in Hebrews 12.24, it points out that Abel's blood cries out from the ground, and Christ's blood is a response to it. Um, the reason for that is he's the, Abel is the first one to die, the first innocent to die, and his blood on the ground to God demanded justice. It said there is a problem and it needs to be resolved. There, a murder took place. This is wrong. It was evidence of sin. And Christ's death is the kind of end of that. It's the absolution of the sin. It's the ending of the need for justice, if that makes sense. So death is a consequence of sin, but then through Jesus it is resolved by death. So it's like a weird thing like that. Um, Abel's blood on the ground calls out for justice, and Jesus' blood is the resolution of that justice. And that's kind of what the book of Hebrews talks about. Um, I'm kind of going to wrap up by talking about the rest of East of Eden. So if you don't like spoilers, cover your ears, because I'm going to tell you everything that happens in the last <laughs> half of the book. Um, the second half of the book follows Adam Trask's two boys. He has two sons. One of them is named Aaron, and he tries his hardest to be perfect. He wants to be a minister, and he wants to please his father, and every decision in his life is based on that. Um, Adam's other son is named Cal, and he is kind of a moody boy who um, kind of a little bit of a troublemaker, and he, he finds out that his mother was a prostitute and is currently a prostitute and he becomes convinced that his wickedness must come from her that his sin and his everything in his life is because of how he was born because of who he comes from um, he also has good in him because he wants to protect his father and his brother from his mother so he knows that his mother's a prostitute and his brother does not know and it, you can kind of see how that plays out in their life because the one son who knows, Cal, he has kind of a penchant for self-destruction and for anger and for just kind of being a tricky person. And oh, throughout all of that, he still doesn't think that it's okay to tell his brother that, hey, mom's, mom's totally a whore right now. Um, 
And Cal tries to win his father's affection. Um, and he basically kind of, not, not kind of, he kind of steals from people. Like in, leading up to World War I, he profits from, uh, from selling beans. So it's like parallel to the one is a farmer, one is a gardener kind of thing. Um, and he makes a ton of money off of this and he offers it to his father and his father says, I would much rather you just lived a good life like your brother Cal. That's, that's what would be better to me. Not your gift of money, not your anything like that. I would rather you just lived a good life like your brother. And Cal, of course, is not having that. And he is upset. And he brings his brother to their mother and says, this is, this is where we came from. This is, that's who we are. And his brother gets drunk and is upset. And he enlists in the army and goes off to war during World War I, and he dies. Um, and when Adam Trask finds out that his son has died, he, he has a stroke because he's so overwhelmed at, the, at his most beloved son dying. And their, their servant brings Cal into the room because Cal is trying to run away because he finds out his brother's dead. He's responsible for it. His father's had a stroke. Um, and he feels responsible for it, and he wants to run away. But their servant brings him into the room where Adam is. And Adam can't do anything. He can't talk. He can't. He's had a stroke. And he says to Adam, look at your son. He is a murderer. He has done horrible things. He wants to be good. You have to, you have to pardon him. You have to say you still love him. You have to forgive him. If you don't, you'll lose him as well. And Adam only says one word to his son, and he just says the word, Tim Schill, thou mayest. And that's how the novel ends. Um, and so I read it, and I was like, oh, my God, like that's so deep. Um, so really, to, if I were to wrap this whole thing up and put a pretty bow on it, I think... Um, Sometimes we think that we'll never be free of our sinful nature, but as God said to the first murderer, a man with our affliction, thou mayest conquer it. And that's, that's it. Now we can talk about it. <laughs> So um, what the book of Hebrews talks about is kind of Jesus being the solution to the problem of sin. Uh, yeah, essentially like the, it ends the blood pact, the sacrifice pact. The, um, we have sinned and so we have to make sacrifices to God in order to be one with God. Um, and what Christ's life does is it provides the, it's almost like a courtroom showdown of um, all these people are wicked, but God steps in and says, I will send my son and he will die and his blood will cover all of those sins. So the justice is the resolution of, basically the resolution of God's wrath, saying no one needs to be punished anymore. That punishment has been paid. Um, that's kind of what the book of Hebrews is talking about. Does that answer that? Yeah, I think um, the use of that word, like 
and that's what I was trying to point out that Christ's death has resolved yes. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a, yeah, and another another one of the lyrics in the song is "Death is at your door, and it'll rob you of your innocence, but it will not rob you of your substance." Um, and I think that I would agree. I think that the "Thou mayest" the choice to to conquer sin is not a lonely one. It's not a individual one necessarily. I think that um, we need Jesus and we need the others in our life in order to recognize and to conquer it. Um, and I think there is hope because. As another translation says, thou, thou will conquer it. So it, it's already assured that it will be conquered. And part of that assurance is through Jesus, because Jesus already conquered it for us. Now we just have to catch up with him. We have to, you know what I mean? Like we have to, we have to allow him to, to make that decision with us, to say, I, I won't do that. I will do this instead. Yeah, I guess my I guess my own personal belief um, regarding kind of that idea that the Old Testament God is very different than the New Testament God. I think that part of why Jesus 
as present in the New Testament is because God presented himself to a group of people and because we're human and we're flawed, we, we got the picture wrong. And so God was like, oh no, no, time to course correct. This is not how I am. This is not who I am. And he sent his son to show, this is actually what I'm about. All these rules I gave you, it was because you wanted to be in charge of what's right and wrong. And you'll never be able to be all right. And so he sent his son and said, actually, you have it wrong. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, you're human. You did the best you could to paint a picture of me. But this is actually who I am, and this is what I represent. That's how I perceive Jesus coming down is course correcting our vision of who God is. And I, that's just my my own opinion, so it could be. The other thing, too, to think about is the, so we know that the Old Testament um, correlates to a lot of other old books. Um, so, like, stories will kind of borrow back and forth between cultures. Um, and so it's more, a lot of times we get really focused on the literal, like, 
Like, if, and I, I actually did this with the Cain and Abel story. Like, I was like, I'm going to look at this literally. When I looked at it literally, I was like, it makes literally no sense. Because it's like, Adam and Eve have two kids, and then Cain kills his brother. And then Cain's like, well, who, someone might kill me if they see me. Where are the other people? You just only talked about four. Like, where are these other, you know what I mean? Like, oh, there's a lot of things where it's like, it does not add up. Um, and I think there are whole, I think there are whole sections of the Old Testament that, and the New Testament where you, it's really easy to get confused because it's like, if you try to read it at face value and literal from a culture that does not take things at face value or literal, it just muddles, like, what is the, like, message behind the story? Um, and I think that a lot of cases, like, the, the flood narrative, it's evident in, like, so many cultures, and I think it was our way of saying, let's put a grace spin on it, because it's actually God saying, not I'm going to destroy the world because it's all wicked, Yes, it's wicked, but I believe that they're still good. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna. So it's taking what the whole rest of the world is saying and spinning it to see God in a different light. Um, and I think there's also like whole histories of the Bible, like books of the Bible. They're like, we're so great, our God killed these like ten thousand people, and you're like, what? Like I don't know if I want to be like part of that faith. And I think part of that too is just the the history of the time. Like if you if you won the war, your God was the better God, and that's just how it was written down then. Uh, what were you going to say, Mark? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I was going to say, it's like the, the day message is like all the blood imagery, death imagery. You're welcome. And it's all like creepy, right? And it's like, why does it have to be a story that's like that? But I think maybe it's because when we just like look around what's going on the planet or what's going on in our communities or world, whatever, it looks really nasty. Well, and that's, I mean, I also talked about the kind of how, like, in medieval times, they tried to make Cain less human. And I think that, well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's really sad because it is, it's the first, like, the first human born naturally is the reputation of literally being a murderer and God saying, no, you have to go away. Um, Yeah, yeah. So, and I think that, uh, the other thing too, like when I was studying it, is I was like, why? Like, I'm sorry, but God, like, why do you have no chill with Cain? Because he, like, he's given you a sacrifice too. Like, what is wrong with this? Like, I was just like, I don't understand. Like, why? Why is your sacrifice good, but his is not? And there's not really any like clarity to it in the scripture. I think it's, I, I, what I, my belief is that uh, it's told that way um, to give a cause or a reason behind Cain's anger. And I think it's told that way to 
I mean, Cain is ultimately the scapegoat of sin. He's the, like, we have to be like, well, someone had to, someone had to start it. So um, I think it's really hard to know. Um, it's, I, mm, I don't know how to say this without sounding like a heretic. I, I guess I, if there was an actual Cain, it's hard to know what his actual relationship with God was. Whereas if it's a story character, it's used to illustrate a broader idea and a broader truth. So I think it's really hard to assess um, assess the nature of God from. Uh, I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, so everyone. It was before. It was before he committed the murder. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. So he said you have a choice. You have a choice of whether or not you're going to do the right or wrong thing. Yeah, show. and I think that that's like, I think it, as much as it pains us, the gift of freedom, like to choose, like that is one of the greatest gifts that God could have designed in us. You know, and that's probably the closest gray area where we try to become God too. You know what I mean? But that, that ability to create, you know, we have the ability to create just yeah. yeah, we have the freedom to choose. You know, there's, um, that, that is a tremendous gift. You know, and yes, the, with the ability to choose comes self-consequences, like self-choice, you know what I mean? And I think that even what happened in the aftermath, the consequences for murder, you know, and God could have been way worse off with Cain. Like, I mean, he, if he murdered 
I'm going to talk about one more thing just to kind of turn this a little bit on its head. Sorry. No, don't be sorry. Um, <laughs> the Liz touched a little bit on another character in the story, the, the girl who tells him you have the choice to be good. In the story, the brother who strives for perfection has, through trying to achieve perfection, has skewed what good is. And it becomes evident. He's actually the, the least likable of the brothers because you're like, okay, well. And I actually saw myself a lot in him, which was really sad because I was like, oh, gross, like, that's me. But the, uh, it's the, he's the one who always does the right thing but has no idea what is good because he's only doing it because it's the, um, it's the expected goodness or the, and his, he has a relationship with this girl and as the book goes on, she hates it because she's like, I, I can't be as perfect as you, as you make me in your mind. Like, I'm never going to be that perfect. And, um, and towards the end of the book, um, there's a guy in the book, my favorite character in the book, his name is Lee. He's their, like, Chinese servant. He's just the best part of the book, I think. But he says to her, like, now that you don't have to be perfect, you're free to be good. And I think that's, like, to me, that really hit me more than any of the other parts of the story. Is like, you don't have to be perfect, you just have to be good. And I was like, oh my god, that's so freeing. Like, um, and breaking that, breaking away good from perfect. Like, I think that's another mm-hmm. thing. I think we so often hear going for, like, the two. And they're separate. They're not the same. Yeah. Was Bond ever Christian? I have no idea. I would. He had a lot going on. Well, Liz, that's judging him by his... I'm just kidding. I think he was. It's, he refers to it as his like kind of magnum opus. And he's actually part of the story, too. He writes his family history into the story, too. So he's a character in the story, just a really minor one. But um, So I think he was just really wrestling with the idea of what makes a person good and what makes a person evil. And um, I, don't, yeah, I, I don't know if he was Christian or not. Um, see who God really is. Um, thank you for coming to understand how we live and to understand uh, what it is like to be human. Uh, we ask that you would continue to show us that you have given us that choice that we we may choose to conquer evil, that we may choose the right decision. Um, I ask that you would bless us as we go throughout this week and help us to see your presence more in our lives.